Well, fuck, we lost Peter. Can uh, you hear me? You, most of what you just said cut out, Peter. <laughs> I can hear you now. You just like I heard the first word, none of the middle, and then the last word. We've lost him again. Oh. Now he's offline. <sighs> Luckily, I don't have to edit this one till I'm back from vacation. <laughs> it's a problem for future Jeremy. Yeah. <laughs> can you guys hear me now? <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your co-host, Sean Hartman, creative director for the upcoming box set compilation, Fire Waltz With Me, Classical Impressions of Twin Peaks. I'd buy that for $3 even. Well, for only four low payments of $39.95. I'd buy that for twin dollars. Ooh, I outbid Peter. I'm co-host Jeremy Ruggles, curator and autographer of topographical mappery. Oh, I'm glad I almost used curator in my title. I'm glad I went a different route. I'm Peter Cook, seeker of the best Claude Monet impression. Get it? Oh... (laughs) I see what we all did there. We all did some things. We sure did. I think we uh, we were giving a little jab at the academic world there, eh? <laughs> I believe you're right. Giving a little knock on those ivory towers, if you know what it I is mean. Is nothing that sacred. Leads us right, <laughs> leads us right into what we came to talk about, doesn't it? Taking jabs at the academic world. What are we going to talk about? Are, true or false, are we going to talk about the origin and true creator of Krautrock. <laughs> yeah, that's what we came to talk about and reveal to the world. Ravel. Are you saying that Krautrock was invented by a Frenchman? Yes. <laughs> Scandalous. <laughs> Truly. Yeah, I brought Ravel, Bolero, and Mother Goose Sweet, the release on RCA Victor Red Seal in 1950. I'd like to state a little disclaimer up front that if you are new to I'd Buy That for a Dollar and came looking for scholarly analysis on Ravel, this ain't the place. But if you want to hear enthusiasm over inexpensive used LPs, look no further. Because, yeah, none of us claim to, by any means, be scholars on classical music. Are we even connoisseurs in any way? Are any of you? I don't own more than a dozen or so in my collection. I'm a, a hopeful future connoisseur. I, yeah, I've got you know a couple of random ones that I picked up at thrift stores, either because I it sounded familiar or the artwork was cool, but I rarely put classical on. And I, I've been thinking for a few years now that you know I want to I want to start digging in and really become knowledgeable about classical music. Yeah, I hope to also have some kind of. Uh awakening i'm now into my 40s it's about time i think (laughs) exactly 
it's time. Well, in the meantime, I I'm ready for some enthusiasm. So plant some seeds. That's right. So, so I'd like to actually start not with Bolero. I want to start with Mother Goose Sweet, the second track on side B, Little Ugly Girl, Empress of the Pagodas. We're going to start there with Maurice Ravel. like Ravel. And I have to say, I was, I mean, I'm familiar with Ravel and I had an idea in my head what Ravel sounds like. And then you said you wanted to do Bolero and I was like, oh, I know Bolero. And then I listened to it. And I'm like, that doesn't sound like Ravel. I had never connected that he did that piece of music, but this is, I would say, historically what Ravel sounds like. That's why I wanted to start here, to get an idea of what his music more traditionally sounded like. Good observation, Jeremy. Thank you. <laughs> Jeremy gets one gold star so far. <laughs> yes. Yes, keep track of your gold stars, Jeremy. It's of scholarly importance for me to keep track. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. So the Mother Goose Sweet, that we just heard a part of was written in 1910 by Maurice Ravel as a five movement piano duet. The following year, he orchestrated this suite and the different movements are based on different fairy tales. There's sleeping beauty, 
Little Tom Thumb, Beauty and the Beast. This part we just heard is inspired by the French fairy tale, The Green Serpent, which I don't think that one's translated over to the United States. All those other ones are very familiar names. But, you know, you could hear whimsy in there, I'm sure, and a lot of variation in tone. And I'm actually, honestly, before researching for this, I don't think I was very familiar with much of Ravel's work other than Bolero. So I was very surprised to hear stuff like this with a lot of coloring, variation. I guess orchestration in particular was, if he had a strong suit, and he had many, but right at the top of that was orchestration, you know, not only his own pieces, but other people's. He was very well known for just being a master of orchestrating pieces. Yeah, the Impressionists are known for textural uh, focus in their pieces. And they're also known for not liking the tag Impressionist. <laughs> you know, yeah. both Debussy and Ravel did not like being called that. But yeah, it's like, in my brain at least, it tends to be slower, floaty, and very like texturally changing constantly. Yeah, what I was reading is that there's a lot of dynamic shifts to make you focus less on the individual parts and more on the the general vibe of the whole piece, basically. Which is kind of my favorite way to listen to a lot of music. So I was I was struck pretty early on in researching for this episode how much I actually really enjoyed a lot of the work from Ravel that I was hearing. Yeah, that focus on that texture and that slow moving shifts, especially with Bolero, was right up my alley. Mm-hmm. So I guess, yeah, you know, we usually ask uh, what our backgrounds are or prior knowledge of the artists that we cover on here. And, you know, Jeremy's stated his, you stated yours as well, Sean, more or less. Is there anything else you want to say? About your background, with I didn't Ravel. state anything. <laughs> well, you stated that you just <laughs> you, you seem to know a lot. You said that you were uh, that you were familiar with uh, pieces other than Bolero, which I'd say is more than a lot of people can say. Yeah, I had a phase in in high school. I did a couple like music theory classes that kind of sparked this interest in classical that lasted a few years and it predates any of my record collecting though so i only have like 12 or so classical records in my collection but i had a heavy phase of studying the history and all that i had almost a year straight in high school where every night i went to bed listening to verklerda nacht by schoenberg so Damn, you were getting cultured early on. Yeah, I know a little bit about classical. A lot of it's faded through the years of devastating my brain. <laughs> well, that's cool, though. It's uh, it's admirable what you did with your young self there. Sean, did you have any more you wanted to say about your background with Ravel or classical in general? I have a weird relationship with classical where I've priced so many classical records over the years and seen a lot of names and have some like 
vague general impressions of things from that, but I don't put on the music enough and I couldn't tell you what the different composers sound like for the most part, or even like where their place in history and who their contemporaries are. The whole thing just kind of seems overwhelming and confusing. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the few artists that like, I know I really like and constitutes like a lot of the classical records that I own is Mahler. I forget where I even really first was like, yep, this is a guy that I like. I'm going to pick up some records, but I definitely kind of noticed some similarities stylistically between the Mahler records that I've listened to and the Ravel stuff. So I'm into this. Yeah. I don't know a whole lot myself about classical music, except I kind of do because my brother, he was immersed in that world when we were teenagers. He started playing piano, got really into classical music, composition, he went all the way with it, you know, went to school for it. He's a professional musician. What's up, Jonathan Cook? <laughs> I don't th I don't think I brought him up on the podcast yet, so just got to give him a shout out. I reached out to him uh, before this, uh, you know, with any suggestions or ideas, and he just knows too much for me to have reached out last minute to him <laughs> trying to get some pointers, you know, where to start. So I know a lot of names and I know more pieces when I hear them than I realize I do just hearing him play them in the house growing up. But I was just so into my rock and roll kick that, you know, different worlds, different paths that we, we went down, but this piece came to my attention a little over a decade ago. It was actually this LP was sitting in a collection of freebies that was at the radio station that both Sean and I DJed at, WIDR, Kalamazoo. And it was just a box of records. And Brad Miller, another DJ at the station, was flipping through them and he's pulling them out. Hey, you, do you know this one? Do you know this one? I, he handed me three or four. And this was one of them. I you know didn't know it by name. Took it home and I, th I put it on and I, th I think I recognized the general theme of Bolero, but didn't really understand the greater importance of the piece or what made it so unique at the time. And maybe a year later, when my wife and I had started dating, she, being an avid podcast listener, was uh, showed me a, a, an episode of Radio Lab that I know Jeremy has heard unravel. Yeah, shout out, shout out to Radio Lab. Uh, we just like to bring some of the smaller podcasters into the spotlight <laughs> yeah. here at I'd Buy That for a Dollar. Yeah. Help them get a leg up. Yep. Give Radio Lab a, a little bump. <laughs> they had an episode called Unraveling Bolero. And I'm not going to go into what that's about. I'm just going to say it's worth checking out. It's only 25 minutes or so. I did listen to it again, as did Jeremy, in preparation for this. But yeah, Ravel. Let's talk a little bit about Ravel. Maurice Ravel was born Joseph Maurice Ravel, March 7th, 1875, in France. His father was an engineer, and his mother was from an old Basque family, which are the, the Basque are indigenous to Basque country, which straddles the border between France and Spain. And Ravel's mother encouraged him to pursue music. In 1889, when he was 14, Ravel began taking courses 
at the Paris Conservatoire, a prestigious music and dance school located in the capital of France, studying under Gabriel Faure, who was one of the most foremost French composers of his generation. Faure, as a teacher at the Paris Conservatoire, had fostered in his pupils harmonic sensibility as well as crafty compositional techniques, but he never gave them strict guidelines for composing according to his style. And many of Foray's students each took drastically different individualistic directions. Ravel remembered Foray for being very open-minded. And just one of the noteworthy students of Foray is Ravel. So when Ravel left the conservatoire in his early 20s, he began to carve his own path as a composer. He met Claude Debussy, as we mentioned before. They both created a new style known as Impressionism. Of course, as Jeremy mentioned, they both rejected this term. It's noteworthy for its dreamlike quality. It gives you the sense of floating, very colorful music, flowery orchestration with lots of development. However, Ravel liked to experiment with musical form, as he does in his best-known work, mentioned many times already, Bolero, in which repetition takes the place of development. So Bolero is a one-movement orchestral piece. There are two melodies that repeat in sections of two over and over as it gradually builds. So at this juncture, if y'all are ready, I'm into playing the first couple minutes of Bolero. Let's do it. Okay. Ready. Thank you. 
that being the very famous piece in classical music history. I definitely recognized the melody in part, but this was probably the first time where I'd really listened to the song in full or a little more carefully. And the thing I really noticed, my first impressions there, was that your attention and focus changes kind of naturally throughout the song, or at least it did for me. There's like different instruments that kind of naturally grab my attention at points. And then like as it gets louder, I would focus on different parts of it or kind of lose track of focusing on it in detail and kind of taking the general impression and then something would kind of shift my focus. I don't know if you guys had that experience <laughs> listening to it, but uh, one thing I noticed in giving it my full attention is that I would start to question, you know, as it's trading off between different instruments, I would start to question what I was hearing versus what I was imagining was there. And at some points I couldn't even tell. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Which maybe by design or, or not. <laughs> well, that's the primary function of repetition in music is your brain kind of naturally starts to imagine things that aren't actually happening or changes that aren't actually happening, shifts in tempo and volume and things like that, uh, which I, th I think is fascinating. I love the, the tricks that the mind and the ear play when you're listening to very repetitive music. Yeah, this kind of reminds me a little bit of, we mentioned a few episodes back, Tony Conrad, who goes a step beyond this with you know, these long extended drones with that's just gradually shift over the course of like sometimes half an hour to an hour. You, if you go back to the beginning, you realize that there was a shift, but you don't almost can't detect it as you're sitting through that uh, drawn out process. Mm -hmm. And the, the contrasting melodies are similar enough where if you're not paying attention, you can kind of not even realize that it changed, but just it, think it's the same thing. And maybe you're hearing it differently, you know? This was in researching this, it was the first time I realized that there were two different melodies that play. I always thought it was just one. And then I was, you know, I actually sit down and pay attention. I'm like, oh, there's kind of a counter melody that happens. <laughs> you know what it also reminds me of? Uh, were either of you at the cheer accident set at the record store that I booked as part of the one of the already dead family reunion festivals? I, I wasn't, but I know what you're going to say. <laughs> I know I heard about this experience. Sure. So there's this long-running Chicago band called Cheer Accident that does a kind of weirdo prog kind of thing. And I booked them at a set, and one of the bands on the the lineup had dropped, so there was extra time. And I told them if they wanted a longer set, they could. And they ended up playing this song. I, the title of it escapes me at the moment. But they played this song that has a section in the middle where they basically like lock into this short repetitive groove and then just hold it for what seems like an eternity to the people who are standing there watching the band. And it ended up being a really fascinating experience of not only hearing the music and hearing this very repetitive thing at length in loud volumes, but then also seeing how everybody's different reaction to it went. Some people, you know, loved it and just zoned out and loved every minute of it. Some people stormed out. Some people were talking amongst themselves, being like, what the fuck am I listening to? Why won't they just change this riff? <laughs> and the other thing that a lot of people experienced is a lot of people thought that they were hearing the tempo speed up or slow down or hearing other elements that were being subtly added. And the band maintained that it was 100% the exact same thing with no change the whole time. But again, the intent 
was to make people have different impressions of what had happened based on, you know, how they were taking it in and how they were experiencing it. So, you know, some, some Ravel influence there for sure. Very interesting. So a little background on this piece. It was composed in 1928 and Ravel had long entertained the idea of building a composition around a single theme, which would slowly grow throughout with subtle shifts. And he described it as something consisting wholly of orchestral tissue without music. And Valero's theme came to him while on holiday in southwestern France. Right before going for a swim, he played the melody on a piano for a friend and said, don't you think this theme has an insistent quality? And it was informed by Ravel's interest in Spanish folk music. And it was based on a Spanish dance called Bolero. Ravel had a wide range of influences. He had interest in American jazz and blues. Um, he had been on a North American tour just before starting to work on Bolero and had met George Gershwin on this tour. So he was crossing over uh, to the other side, you know. And so he planned for this piece to repeat many times without any development, just one gradual crescendo. He began working in July of 1928 and completed it five months later, which sounds like a long time for a piece with so little changes, but this was actually fast for Ravel. He really was meticulous with his orchestration. It helped that there was a deadline because it was done for uh, Russian dancer and friend Ida Rubinstein to choreograph. The piece, Bolero, was given its premiere at the Paris Opera on November 20th, 1928. Reportedly, a woman in the audience shouted that Ravel was a madman upon hearing the piece. And when Ravel was informed of this, he commented that it meant she understood the piece. <laughs> <laughs> So that was like the classical version of someone yelling Judas. <laughs> exactly. Oh, uh-huh. And it became a surprise success. Ravel thought orchestras would refuse to play this piece. You know, and, and nowadays it's it's played almost purely as an orchestral work, rarely staged as a ballet. In an interview, Ravel said, I am particularly desirous there should be no misunderstanding about this work. It constitutes an experiment in a very special and limited direction and should not be suspected of aiming at achieving other or more than it actually does. So he kind of tried to downplay Bolero and he, you know, although he considered it one of his least important works, it has always been his most popular. Go figure, right? Yeah, that's just the case so often in the art world, it would seem. <laughs> We see it over and over. We've seen it many times on the, talking about records on this podcast. Uh, so the majority of Bolero is in C major, and it's built over this unchanging rhythm on snare drums. Towards the very end, there's a brief, sudden modulation or key change to the key of E, although before it ends, it returns to C. And the bass drum, tam-tams, and cymbals make their entrance six bars from the end of the composition. <laughs> so I can imagine this is like a usually anywhere from 
13 to 17 minutes when performed. So uh, I think the aside from the snares, the uh, percussion section are, are just hanging around. <laughs> just counting empty bars for like 16 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so let's play the last couple minutes of Bolero and hear where it has how where how this theme what it has developed into by this point. So we'll listen up to the end. we haven't mentioned so far is that this is performed by the Boston Symphony Orchestra conducted by Serge Kusevitsky, a double bassist and conductor considered one of the great conductors in the first half of the 20th century. He was Russian born and was the music director of the Boston Symphony Orchestra for a long time, 1924 to 1949. He was actually, we mentioned at the top that this was on the RCA Victor Red Seal. He was one of the premier artists on this label. And I guess I, looking into what RCA Victor Red Seal is, basically it's premium content. <laughs> That's It was considered to be the top artist, top tier type of stuff. I don't know if, uh, Sean, if you've, you're at all familiar with that label or that concept. Yeah. Of all of the classical labels, that one seems to more often have records of some value and desirability. And the I know a lot of their stuff is praised for its high pressing quality as well. Yeah, I mean, I think I, 
I don't know for sure, but I think this copy we're listening to today is a 1950 pressing and, you know, it's, it's had its, it's, it's not (laughs) by any means mint, but it's held up overall. Yeah. This is, this is officially the oldest record we've had on the show to date, right? I think it, I think it ties with the, uh, Ema Sumac. 1950 although the the performance the performances date to 1947 they were done on on different dates and locations but both uh sides are from 1947 so yeah we're going way back here well definitely the oldest pressing we've had on the show then at the very least i see what you're saying because the ema sumac was definitely not a 1950 original (laughs) right yeah i gotcha a few years after the success of Bolero, Ravel suffered a head injury in a taxi accident, and this is believed to have exacerbated a previously existing cerebral condition. Uh, shortly before the composition of Bolero, friends had noticed an increased absent-mindedness in Ravel, and his interest in repetition may have been the result of the onset of either progressive aphasia or frontotemporal dementia, both of which are neurological syndromes that affect both memory and speech. That's actually the Radiolab episode that we talked about covers that. And someone who, who became obsessed with Bolero and had a similar condition. After the accident, Ravel struggled to complete his work, and he didn't compose the last few years of his life, although he is said to have remained socially and physically active. He died in Paris, France on December 28, 1937, at the age of 62, one week after exploratory brain surgery. I believe they were trying to figure out what was going on with him. Uh, today, he remains widely regarded as France's most popular composer. He's up there for sure. And Bolero is the universal piece, but there's a lot more to his story and his music. Uh, Like I said, you know, he was a master orchestrator. Some of the the, uh, orchestrations he did for other people's pieces are very highly regarded. Uh, That was one of the key points my brother made when I was talking to him. Yeah, and there's so much information as far as, like, the context of this. I mean, I can, earlier Sean mentioned seeming overwhelmed by the amount of information, and if you think about it, the time frame of music we call classical is hundreds of years, and most of the music we talk about is just from the past hundred years, and we have you know, a billion different genre names, we call it all. (laughs) And there's like, there's some division in within classical into different periods, but even those are like hundred year periods. Yeah, so it's too much information for us to cover all here, but it is an endlessly interesting wormhole if you just keep digging. Yeah, that is like the one thing I've noticed in the little bit of uh, dipping my toes into the world of classical music is yeah when you look at it as just all of classical music it's definitely overwhelming with the hundreds of years of material 
but when you start to hear pieces that you like, then you can go into like, okay, what, what period was this made? What is the, you know, movement that it's attributed to? And then you can find similar artists that appeal to you and kind of narrow into, you know, certain periods of classical music, make it a little bit less overwhelming. Yeah. You mentioned liking Mahler and Mahler would have been like late romantic era, which is what immediately preceded this. So it makes sense that you like this too. Exactly. Well, I'm so glad that you did all that studying of classical when you were younger, Jeremy. (laughs) (laughs) I'll put you over my shoulder and carry us across the finish line. Don't worry. (laughs) Sean, uh, what were you able to put together for a Spotify playlist for this episode? Well, I can't take very much credit for this playlist because I'm not the one with the knowledge. So I got some good suggestions from you guys. I also pulled a few artists that I'd, you know, read were associated with him or influential to him. And I tried to find songs on Spotify that were from older pressings that you can find easily, but the majority of material on Spotify is newer songs. So, you know, not all of these are going to be the exact dollar bin copy that you will find. But if you like some of these composers and songs, etc., then it's a good starting point of where to start looking in those classical bins. So we start off with a version of Bolero, and then you'll also hear works from Debussy. Is that how it's pronounced? Debussy? Debussy. I think, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I always said Debussy, and I'm always wrong about pronunciation, so... <laughs> Well, hopefully one of us is close enough. I also put one of the parts of Verkult Nacht. I'm probably mispronouncing that as well. But I remember Jeremy telling me a few months ago that that was one of his all-time favorite classical pieces by Schoenberg. I put that in there. Also, here's some works from Shostakovich, other tracks from Ravel, some Rachmaninoff, Stravinsky. And then just for a oddball context to show much later how this music has influenced other music put a track by joe walsh that was your suggestion peter do you want to tell people why there's a joe walsh track on this playlist yeah yeah the last piece that we're going to listen to is the first movement of the mother goose suite pavan of sleeping beauty and joe walsh recorded a synthesized version of this on his 1974 album so what that's what we're going to be leaving on and that's just like Joe Walsh, I mean, but I, you know, it actually makes sense. Like if I, I think about, I don't want to admit this, but what Joe Walsh brought to the Eagles. <laughs> if I think about that, you know, like there, there, I think there were a lot of uh, the '70s rock guitarists actually were very inspired by classical music that kind of paved the way for, you know, these harmonized dual guitars. You know, like Boston, they were really inspired by classical music. Jeff Beck, I believe you also put something by him on the playlist, Sean? Yeah, Beck has a version of Bolero from his album Truth that I put on the playlist. You know, in some slight similarities, I feel like the more you get into classical music, the more you start to hear the influence or, you know, quotes from passages in other styles of music in the same way that getting into soul and hip-hop music will 
make you like hear a soul song and be like, oh, I know the sample from this hip hop track. You kind of get like, you know, those similar moments of realization the more you listen to classical music. Because yeah, a lot of these classical composers were very influential to certain rock bands and especially a lot of jazz artists, um, mm-hmm. particularly the more adventurous, like free jazz styled artists were all very influenced by classical music. Well, of course, coming full circle to uh, what Jeremy said at the top, a lot of Krautrock stuff can being one of them, you know, they were studying underneath what's his name. I'm blanking on him. Uh, Schockhausen. They were can, those guys were studying classical avant-garde classical. And so I have to think this, you know, this, this piece wouldn't have even been that old in the 1960s. It would have been like a, what, 40 years old. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) And, uh, you know, probably still fairly radical. Wow, that's like as old as the message is yeah. to us now. <laughs> yeah, that's about exactly right. The early 1980s. But things moved differently, I feel like, in the uh, first to middle half of the of the 20th century. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole different set of changes in society <laughs> there. Uh, yeah, there were like wars going on. That kind of broke things up, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on a world scale. Yeah, so... Uh, Honestly, I was even thinking about the fact that this may have even had an influence on pop music as far as like repeated sections over and over without much variation. That's largely mm-hmm. what a lot of pop music is. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, now that we're on the subject of rock music influenced by classical, I'm going to add a track by the New York Rock and Roll Ensemble to this playlist after we're done recording this episode. Oh, there! I have a record by them sitting in my episodes to do pile. Mm. I, I believe they're also on my episodes to do list as well. So someday we're gonna get real hyped on some New York rock and roll ensemble, Dolly yeah. Bin Classic. Yeah, we've long talked about doing something by them, and I don't know them, so you guys got to bring it. Teach we me. Will. <laughs> <laughs> well, any closing thoughts before we uh go out on i was listen i was thinking about this and for whatever reason i feel a need to defend classical vinyl collectors right now fair enough because i know people like sean are just judging them endlessly because they have a a uh, stereotype of being extremely particular about their equipment and the quality of the records and knowing which pressings are what. And I just want to throw out there, though, if you listen to this or almost any other piece, the dynamic range between the quiet parts and the loud parts are way huger difference than almost all pop and rock and soul and everything else so i think there is some legitimacy to that though i also this has nothing to do with the classical people but i'm gonna out myself a little here as a soccer card collector (laughs) and and people get their cards graded by these companies and 
my buddy who's also into it sent me this link because he knows I'm really into vinyl and have this podcast. And they're now grading vinyls. Like you send your vinyl to this place and they will grade how how mint of condition it's in. And then they'll play it just one time and record it digitally so that you don't have to play it again and damage it any further. And then they give you a digital copy for you to listen to. Oh, wow. <laughs> I knew that they did this, that kind of grading with cards when I got out all my baseball cards from my youth, you know, my big investments that I made for the future when I was younger and uh, thought I was, you know, ready to cash in and then found out there was this whole new system in place <laughs> that it, it sounded like way too much of a bother. Well, I, I now feel the need to defend myself a little bit now that uh, Jeremy's been making these claims about my opinions about classical collectors. I've got nothing but love for the majority of classical collectors. Uh, some of them can be a real pain in the ass and real picky about stuff, but I completely agree with Jeremy that it kind of comes with the territory of being a classical music collector because so many of these records have such a wide dynamic range that if you're hearing even slight pops and clicks during the quiet section, there's so much more noticeable than when you're listening to a rock record where all the instruments are just kind of, you know, the, the dynamic shift is between eight and 10, not one in 10, like on classical records. So it completely makes sense to me. Also, there is one group of people that will always annoy me way more than classical collectors. And that's people that say the word vinyls. <laughs> I knew it was going to come around to that. So you can go to hell, sir. That's, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Oh, I'll admit my my argument was a straw man argument. <laughs> Sean wasn't really the one saying that. I just used him as a stand. He likes to project on Sean because he can. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I'll take it. Well, all good points. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap this up? Just that my name's Jeremy Ruggles, and you've been listening to I'd Buy That for a Dollar. I'm Sean Hartman, and I must agree that you have been listening to I'd Buy That for a Dollar. And I will jump in and support what these two gents are saying. If you'd like to support us, check out patreon.com slash I'd Buy That Podcast. All kinds of cool extra bonus content there. And I am Peter Cook. You have been listening to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, and we are going to leave you with Pavan of Sleeping Beauty. By Maurice Ravel, from the Mother Goose Suite, as performed by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Goodbye.